0: Well, we're gonna go ahead and get started now. Good evening, and welcome to the second Geneva Visiting Artist and Lecture Series. It's called GVALS at Geneva. Uh, this is the second event of this academic year, and my name is Jeff Cole, and I direct Crossroads, which is Geneva's Center for Enriched Learning. Uh, we're the office that hosts and plans Geneva's speaker series. And we usually host three speakers each semester, so perhaps some of you have attended an event in the past But this is our first all-virtual event, so welcome to our first all-virtual event. We're glad to have students, faculty, staff, alumni, and friends from across the country and actually across the world joining us tonight, so welcome. Before we introduce tonight's speaker, I want to put in a plug for our next speaker, Dr. Steve Garber. He'll be giving two GVALS lectures. One is on Thursday, April 15th at 7 o'clock in the evening, and it's entitled, Can M&Ms Save the World on the Business of Business? And then Friday, April 16th at 10.10 in the morning, Seeing Seamlessly, Why Learning to Learn Matters to God and the World. And both of these events will be held in the John White Chapel on our campus and also broadcast live via Zoom. So if you're with us tonight via Zoom and you can't come to campus because of COVID restrictions, we'd love to have you join us. So if you'd like to receive information about attending virtually, you can send an email to Crossroads. At geneva.edu and we'll get you connected. For those who are on campus, posters with sign-up information will be going up a couple weeks before the event. So we're happy to have the Reverend Tish Harrison-Warren with us this evening, and uh, it's good to have Dean Jamie Swank with us, our Dean of Student Development, and Jamie is going to introduce our speaker, Dean Swank.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Um, I'm thrilled to have Tish Harrison-Warren here with us this evening. Uh, I've had the privilege to sit under Tish's teaching at the Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, where I attend, and uh, have watched her minister with depth and effectiveness at uh, CCO's annual Jubilee Conference, which is held annually in downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, perhaps what's impacted me most about Tish's ministry and teaching is how she weaves so adeptly the gospel into all that she does. Um, I find her work to be unapologetic about the difficulties that come with life in general and those that so often come with following Christ. Uh, however, there's a vulnerable honesty that's rich in hope um, that I find in her work that um, I think is so needed, um, especially in the season that we're in right now. Um, a hope that says every ordinary thing matters, um, that our daily lives matter, uh, and that his grace is sufficient to cover all of our lives if we'll just lean into the Father. Um, and so there's invitation and there's hope uh, mixed in this honesty in a way that I think um, just highlights the beauty uh, of the gospel of Christ. Uh, I find Tish to be dangerously authentic in a world that so often is not. Um, and her gentle courage, uh, I believe, is what allows the Holy Spirit to move through her words so fluidly. Tish is a priest in the an Anglican church in North America. Uh, she's the author uh, of the liturgy, I'm to give a little shout out here, of the ordinary sacred pra- practices in everyday life which is actually Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year. It's actually a book that we've used in student development with our student leaders, uh, with our staff, and in a variety of discipleship settings with students on campus. And Tish also just released her newest book, uh, Prayer in the Night, uh, for those who work or watch or weep um and very generously uh both of these books are available in uh the crossroads office uh on the top level of the student center um uh this one for ten dollars and this one for 11 um, which is a steal and you'll be blessed by both of them so hope you check them out uh tish has also worked in ministry settings for over a decade as a campus minister within our graduate and faculty ministries as an associate rector with addicts and those in poverty through various churches and nonprofit organizations. And most recently, as the writer in residence at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh. She's a monthly columnist with Christianity Today. Uh, And you can see her articles and essays uh, in New York Times, Religion News Services, uh, Christianity Today, Comment Magazine, The Point Magazine, uh, as well as others. Uh, She's a founding member of the Pelican Project and a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum uh, which you've not checked out, the Trinity Forum. It's a fantastic resource. It's actually a, a lectures on Friday, typically, uh, one tomorrow with Ruth Haley Barton that you should check out. Um, uh, but tonight, uh, we get to hear from Tish, which is awesome. And so Tish is with her husband and her three children in Texas, uh, where it is warm and glorious right now and not rainy and gray like it is in Pittsburgh. So if you'll welcome Tish with me.
0: Hey, um, before you start, Tish, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention that people can use the Q&A function at the bottom of their screen to ask questions. And if you're nervous about that, only uh, Jamie and Tish and I can see them, so you're not broadcasting to everybody. So sorry to interrupt. Tish, it's all yours.
2: No, that's great. Please do feel free to ask questions, whatever you want, about what I'm presenting or anything else about myself or my ministry. Um, It's really great to be together. I wish, I so wish that I was with you in person. when we um when we made this event, it was going to be in person and then um, because of various uh, family needs and um, we ended up moving to Texas. So that was not expected when I when I agreed, but I really appreciate Janina's um, great, uh, generous flexibility with me um, to let me still come and be with you. I I um, hope. This is like a rain check. This is like a deposit for a future time when uh, maybe I can visit the campus and meet folks face to face. Um, So it's a little weird to pray on Zoom, um, but but I'm going to give a little talk here. So I would like to start. So um, if you've been going to church via Zoom, you've Probably this isn't your first time this year to pray by Zoom, but let's I'm going to go ahead and start with a brief prayer. Lord, we need you. You are in the midst of us. Our souls are hungry for you alone. We pray that you'd bless all of the technology that makes this possible, that it would work. That even though we are um, separated, that you would still work That you are with us and you would come, Holy Spirit. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All right. So thank you for all of you for being with me um, tonight. And um, I'm going to to speak specifically, I was asked to speak specifically about my new book, Prayer in the Night. which just recently came out. So um, I'm going to tell you kind of a little bit about the book. Uh, just a little note: I don't typically write um, books that are um, that are didactic in the sense that are um, have a thesis and three points supporting the thesis. Uh, my books are more uh, um, explorations and. Um, if if I can make the point in a blog post, then I don't write the book. So I tend to try. So the point is books um my books explore more material than I could possibly cover in one given talk. So I'm just gonna take sort of a little part, uh one section out of my book and look at that. But in general, as an overview, I began Prayer in the Night af out of um a hard year in my own life. It's not a memoir, um, but it has, it certainly has memoirish parts to it. Um, So it began kind of in the year 2017, a few years ago, and it was just a hard, hard year for me and for my family. We moved across the country from Texas to Pittsburgh for a job um, working at Church of the Ascension there. And um, my a week later, after we moved, my father back in Texas passed away unexpectedly um, and or suddenly. And uh, he had been sick, but uh, we thought we had more time. And um, so I had a ticket for his birthday uh, to fly down, um, and I ended up using that ticket for. Uh, to go to his funeral and to speak at his funeral. The day after his um, funeral, um, I found out I was pregnant with a third child, which we had hoped for and longed for for a very long time. And uh, so it was this crazy mix of emotions. It snowed all. I was back in Pittsburgh. It snowed all day. Was grieving my father. Was joyful about this um, finding out we were having a baby. And three weeks later, in pretty um, dramatic fashion medically, I miscarried. So the book kind of picks up there. Actually, it picks up in the emergency room. Um, And uh, then later, uh, we were pregnant again, and that was a long, hard pregnancy, and we lost another son in July. So it was about six months of just, of, of difficulty. And I was tired. I was worn out after this time. Um, I should say that the things that I suffered are not unheard of. It's not catastrophic suffering. There is, um, kind of a genre of Christian literature about dealing with sort of traumatic and catastrophic loss. Um, but, uh, in ways mine was ordinary suffering. Um, a lot of us, almost all of us, if we live long enough, will um, lose a parent. Um, one in four pregnant seasons in miscarriage. A lot of us have moved across the country and started new jobs. Um, a lot of us have been, um, have been lonely. That's, uh, that's a, a normal thing to have to um, wrestle with. And so, um, so it wasn't unheard of, But, um, but at the end of that time, nevertheless, I was still um, spiritually exhausted and I found it really difficult to pray. I say in the book that I was a priest that couldn't pray. I was asking a lot of questions about how to kind of continue in the way of Jesus in the midst of pain and darkness. And I felt that, that prayer was difficult in part because I did have so many questions that I knew would remain unanswered, but also, um, because, um, because I I wasn't sure how to trust God. And, um, in the words of a former pastor of mine, he would say, he said in a sermon, um, we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us. Um, he never promises that and we cannot trust him for that. And so, um, I asked and I ask in the book, so if, if we can't trust God to keep all bad things from happening to us, then how do we trust God at all? Um, and I didn't have an answer. So to be clear, I had finished seminary i was ordained at this point i had kind of i could give a theological answer to that question i can give a theological answer to that question but the problem was is that answer wasn't um wasn't very satisfying to me theologically but mostly emotionally it wasn't very satisfying to me the question i was asking about how can god be good and powerful and yet um bad things regularly continue to happen in the world, is what um, theologians and philosophers call theodicy. It's a logical dilemma um, asking about how an all-powerful, all-good God could um, exist in a world that is where there's darkness, where there's brokenness, where there's suffering. But um, it also means something more profound than merely a philosophical question um, it often, it represents for many of us a crisis of faith that comes with an encounter with suffering in our own lives. So theodicy is not this kind of cold um, intellectual conundrum. It's the often engine for our doubt, um, for our sort of grimace thoughts on God. Um, and it can sometimes wither belief altogether a survey by Barna showed that the most commonly stated reason for unbelief among millennials and Gen Zers, which I think is the majority of who I'm talking to tonight. Um, but even if not, just if, if you know millennials and folks that are Gen Z, the most common stated reason for unbelief in the Christian m- message and faith was that, and this is a quote, they had a hard time believing that a good God would allow so much evil or suffering in the world. This was a more commonly stated reason than we've seen in um, any other generation since they've begun doing this survey. So it seems like this is an increasing issue that young folks are are dealing with and um, that it makes it difficult to believe. It's a struggle with belief itself. I say in the book that ultimately theodicy, or this the problem of pain or the problem of evil, as it's called, is not just kind of a cosmic algebra equation where we can solve for X, but instead it's it's like a primordial scream. It's a protest from the depth of the human heart, saying, where are you, God? What is anyone watching out for us? Why this evil? Why this heartbreak? Why this suffering? In the book, I say that the Odyssey is an existential wrestling match. It's a knife fight between the reality of our own vulnerability and a hope for a God that can be trusted, that can be relied upon. Because at the end of the day, I we don't ultimately want an answer. We want action on God's part. We want God to set things right. Uh, I, I think ultimately... Um, the struggle is a longing for the eschaton, the end of things, where Jesus makes all things new. It's a longing for things to be made new. But God has not set things right yet, <laughs> and uh, though Jesus has come and though the kingdom has been established, we live in what theologians call the already and not yet thing. Um, God has shown Himself decisively for us in the person of Christ, and yet. Uh, suffering continues in the world. So I asked the question, how do we continue to endure this mystery, uh, this mystery of theodicy? Flannery O'Connor said um, that in the end, the problem of evil is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be endured. It's a longing or a mystery to be endured. So how do we continue to endure this mystery where we hold with utter honesty the um, reality of our human vulnerability in one hand and the hope of a God who is good and who is trustworthy in another? Sometimes churches can respond to having to endure this mystery in a number of ways um, that are less than helpful or that are not helpful. Um, uh, so I'm going to go over some of those that the church can sort of, um, fall into as ways to kind of, um, uh, I think tamp down or short circuit the questions of the, that theodicy raises. Um, one is that we can, um, kind of belittle the darkness or belittle the suffering in the world. Uh, often the heart, and this is not, Bad. We're trying to focus on goodness, focus on the resurrection, but, um, we end up ignoring the power of death. And so we inevitably end up, if you, if you, uh, belittle the crosses that are real, that people bear, then we always in the, inevitably end up belittling the resurrection as well. Um, So we end up with a Christian, with a a Christian faith that's full of kind of trite answers to pain or shallow responses, pat answers to the brokenness in the world. Um, and we see this. There's some of the most inane, the most cruel, um, kinds of sentimental things can be heard in Christian funeral lines, right? Like, um, that in, in inevitably trying to belittle the pain of death, we end up, um, we end up belittling the hope that Jesus and Jesus alone gives in the resurrection. The other way that we can sort of see churches deal with this in less than helpful ways is that we adopt a subtle or sometimes not so subtle prosperity gospel um, where uh, we, we teach in ways that if we have enough faith or if we do the right thing or if we um, are, are faithful to Jesus – that things will go well for us, or that your dreams will come true, or um that if you are holy enough that bad things won't happen to you and you can um sort of defeat darkness in that way. Um and I think in particular, I think I, I'm I like to talk about this with college students because I think that we can subtly um tell young people that if they keep their end of the bargain, if they live the Christian life as they should, that, um, life will, will work out for them or, or that things will, um, go the way they want, that their marriage will be great, that they'll have as many children as they want, that they'll have a job that's fulfilling, um, and that they love and, uh, and, and that they won't be lonely. Um, and it's not true. It's not true. And it sets, um, young people up to, uh, to struggle when inevitably um, they're seeking to be faithful and things don't work out, and um, the marriage isn't working out, or maybe they're not married at all and want to be, or they they don't have children, or um, or they face illness, or or someone really near them faces illness, or they can't find a job they love. Um, so. I want to say that, uh, I think that we, we sometimes instrumentalize, um, discipleship in a way that it promises things that, um, that we are never promised, uh, because the prosperity gospel kind of subtly, very subtly slips in to, um, the way that we think about faith, even if we aren't people that would ever kind of claim the prosperity gospel as our own. Um, so I want to say that ultimately, um All of these things sort of uh, end up uh, producing unbelief, right? because uh, if we if we either kind of deny the um, reality of darkness or we we um, create kind of a false gospel uh, that we can be holy enough or good enough that things work out for us, when that inevitably doesn't happen. We belief withers. And so it's a problem of discipleship that this is, that this question is, um, is resulting in a kind of protest atheism because we've set people up, um, to, uh, expect something different the, from the Christian life than what is ever promised. Um, so ultimately I say in the book, none of us can, um, uh, None of of these kind of strategies help us endure the mystery of theodicy. And we know it, which is why when this falls apart, people leave the faith. We don't, um, ultimately, in the Christian story, we don't have a pat answer to the problem of theodicy. Um, What we're given in the church is a story. So um, I want to tell a story about my friend Julie that I talk about in the book. I have a good friend named Julie and she has, uh, when her son was really little, he's grown now. Um, but when he was little, he had to have surgery. And so, um, they were waiting in the hospital in the, in the waiting room. And when they came to, to take their son back, um, and wheel him away to the OR, Julie turned to her husband and said, uh, we have to decide in this moment before we know the results of the surgery if we believe that God is good. Because if we wait to decide that based on what happens in the surgery, we will always keep God on trial. So I ask in the book, but how How do you decide that? How in that moment could Julie decide if God was good? Um, she couldn't base it on what was going to happen to her son because she knew um, that that, uh, as she said, always keeps God on trial. She couldn't base it even on the sort of total amount of good in the world versus the total amount of evil in the world, right? If we do that, God becomes kind of Jekyll and Hyde, and the evidence is inconclusive that, um, for every kind of good and beautiful thing you could present, we can also raise an, a moment of horror, right? So Francis Spufford, um, in his great book, Unapologetic, writes, we don't have an argument that solves the problem of the cruel world, but we have a story. The Catechism of the Catholic Church um, says there's not a single aspect of the Christian message that does not impart an answer to the question of evil. So it's the whole gospel story, the whole Christian message, that is the response to this. My friend Julie decided to trust God and to trust that God was good, even when she didn't know whether or not bad things would happen to her son. But, and this is important, this wasn't a leap in the dark or an arbitrary decision. Um, She instead based this decision on the person and story of Jesus. The church has always had to endure the mystery of theodicy. This is not new to our generation. This is something that folks have dealt with for um, millennia. They've always known that this there's not a systematic kind of uh, easy answer to this given in the scriptures. Um, so we are not the first folks to notice there is a tension here. But the church chose to leave, leave this chord kind of humming and dissonance because it proclaims and has always proclaimed that only God Himself can sound the final note. Only God Himself can sort of solve this problem of the Odyssey. Our trust that God is good is not a trust that God um, will take away our vulnerability. It's a trust that comes from the reality that we believe God Himself entered into our vulnerability. Divinity has entered into the fullness of human vulnerability in actual history. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we believe that ultimately death will be defeated. So we look to this story to ground our endurance of the mystery that we face and the suffering in our own lives. But we can't just sort of cognitively hold the story in our head, right? Like this can't be another fact, like the fact that, I don't know, Two and two is four, or that bread is made with yeast and um, flour. this has to be particularly I think in times of deep grief. brute facts as important as doctrine is and it 's very important, but brute facts are too kind of cold to capture our imaginations and our heart and to bring comfort when things are really um, when things are really going bad for us. So the story we live by is one that, as Christians, we have to sort of enter into. We discover our own smaller life story within this greater story of God and his church. But we do that through the practices and prayers that we receive from those who have gone before us, that we receive from the church itself. So how do we do that? Um, I tell a story in my book about... Um, uh, when my husband and I went on we we like to hike and so we hiked mount washington which is in new hampshire and um uh so we um i talk about how um when we go when we went up sorry there's um there's this mountain that you can hike but the weather is terrible like it snows Um, It can go from really warm to really cold really quickly. And then there's this deep fog that settles on the mountain. So hikers have gotten lost and um, and some have even died uh, being lost on the mountain. So what have they done in response? They people of New Hampshire built these giant cairns, like huge rock formations. They're just giant piles of rocks. And when the fog gets really heavy and when it begins to snow and when the weather switches, uh, if you can't find your way up or down the mountain, what you do is you walk from cairn to cairn to cairn, from giant rock formation to giant rock formation. And you may not be able to see anything else except for the cairn, except for this rock formation. But if you go from cairn to cairn, you will make it to the shelter on top of the mountain or at the bottom of the mountain. So um, it's this way that, um, even when nothing else seems clear, that we continue to walk in this, in this way, home, in this way to shelter. So I talk about the prayers and practices of the church in my book as cairns that have kept me in the way of Jesus. Um, when I could not pray, the church said, here are prayers. That was a cairn. When I could not believe, the church said, come to the table and be fed. These practices of the church are cairns given to us to keep us in these uh, in this way of Jesus in the midst of mystery. It keeps us on the path of faith and guides us home sometimes when things seem very uncertain. So I want to highlight three practices, three cairns that I discuss in the book. Practices that help us to endure this mystery of trust in God, this mystery of theodicy or the problem of pain or evil. It, these are cairns that keep us in the way of Jesus in the midst of the already and not yet that we live in, which, by the way, living in the already and not yet is a very uncomfortable place to live. So um, I get these three practices from a particular prayer of Compline, which um, not to get too much into the structure of the book, but the book is framed around one particular nighttime or one particular prayer of Compline. Compline is the nighttime prayers of the, um, the Anglican Church, also the Catholic Church and Lutherans. They're kind of our bedtime prayers. And in 2017, when I found it really difficult to pray, the way kind of back into prayer for me was through this practice of nighttime prayers and through Compline. So I won't get into received prayer, although the book focuses a lot on that. Um, but I take this one prayer and it begins, keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep. And uh the writer of this prayer didn't mean for that to be um, like a slogan or um, uh, uh, certainly not um, uh, kind of a, a pat cliche or anything, but... Um, praying this over and over and over kind of began to form my own imagination around these postures of weeping and watching and working. Um, and so I have a section in the book where I, I look at these practices in particular. Um, and I look at, I talk about them as postures. We have postures of working, watching, and weeping. And this became something like a lattice for me, this strong structure that my imagination about a Christian's response to darkness in the world, a Christian's response to, to evil or to suffering, uh, could begin to grow. So I'll begin, as I began in the book, with the idea of weeping. So, um, part of our response to The problem of evil through to the mystery of theodicy is grief. It's to weep. It was part of Jesus's response to the darkness in the world. Grief, um, I should say, is an ingredient in all of our lives. I used to kind of think that it was the sort of special property of those who had uh, particularly difficult lives or who suffer or were in deep times of suffering. But I've come to see that grief is part of all of our ordinary lives, that at every moment, even the most beautiful moments, there's the shadow of the fall, the shadow of brokenness. So our experience of grief, um, which could and we may not even feel grief all the time. I'm not saying we constantly feel grief, but I'm saying that the, um, that that. Uh, this, that loss, the disappointment, the broken relationships are in kind of a normal part of all of our lives, um, every moment of our lives, even. And that's because this, um, the experience of grief points to something true about the world. It tells us that the world is good and fallen. So in this sense, grief um, speaks theological truth. It tells us about reality, Uh I've come to see mourning as a Christian practice. It's an acknowledgement that things are not as they are meant to be. I make a point in my book about how quickly, um, and this may be particularly true for Americans, we can kind of try to skip over grief. Um, a friend of mine, uh, a reviewer of the book, talks about um, how we can even use theology to kind of ignore or downplay or what he calls put a cork uh, in grief with our theology. But Jesus was one who wept. And if we are to be like him, we have to learn to be people who make space and time for grief. One way to take up the Christian practice of grief is through lament. Lament is... Um, Part feeling sad, it's allowing ourselves to like actually feel bad feelings or uh, un, uh, feelings that are uncomfortable. Um, but lament is more than just feeling sad. It's uh, holding God to God's own promises, particularly when we feel that our experience doesn't conform to those promises. It's saying, Lord, this is your your promise and this is what I'm experiencing where are you how long O lord do you see this do you see me the best way the most common way that the church has historically entered into lament is to um, embrace the psalms to recite the psalms to pray the psalms both corporately and individually Um, the psalms were the first prayer book of the church Uh, this is how the church prayed the early church prayed John Calvin says the Psalms sum up all the, this is a quote, the anatomy of all parts of the soul, which is a great quote from Calvin. Um, and uh through these psalms, generation after generation, the church has learned to be alive to every possible emotion. The psalms have joy and sorrow, they have faith and doubt, they have anger and frustration. But the most um common, the most common psalm. Uh, type of psalm is a psalm of lament it's um it's the most frequent psalm in the psalter um and they dare us these psalms dare us to speak really bluntly to god about our struggles about the pain about what we're feeling um and i think sometimes uh that our gathered worship if it's all just kind of victorious and Uh, Cheer up and um, look at the bright side is actually forming us and teaching us to be less honest than the scriptures themselves teach us to be. Um, Because we see the psalmist struggle, Um, we see the psalmist call out to God, we see the psalmist declare that darkness is their only friend. So the psalms kind of dare us to um, present what's really going on in our lives to God and to trust God with what's really going on in our lives. Um, Jesus himself prayed the Psalms more than any other, um, part of the Hebrew scriptures. We see Jesus over and over again pray the Psalms. Psalm 22, um, is a Psalm of lament that Jesus prays from the cross. And it's the Psalm of deep agony that his, he describes his bones being out of joint, his skin melting like wax. And this Psalm, Uh, And its beauty kind of shows us how to be um, completely honest, to hold together searing pain and doubt. Um, But also, um, the end of the psalm, the psalmist turns and begins to confess the true story of the world, the true reality of the world. The psalms form us into a people who hold the depth of our sorrow with utter honesty, even as we hold to the promises of God just as um, that uh, final Psalm that Jesus prayed come in the end just makes this turn that yet I will trust you. Oh God. Okay. So moving on because of time, uh, I, um, the second thing I talk about after weeping is watching. Um, this has to do with watching for the coming kingdom, watching for the eschaton being prepared for Jesus to come, uh, being kind of leaning forward, like a kid waiting for Christmas, right? My kids are not sort of passive waiters. They don't, it's not just like a a sort of disinterested waiting, but it's this leaning forward of, of when will Jesus come? When will he set things right? And this isn't what's called an eschatological hope, right? A hope for the end of all things. A hope that is, uh, Julian Norwich said that all, all shall be well. Um, but this hope does not um, mean that we have to pretend that things are well now. It just means that our hope ultimately, and the hope for all Christians ultimately, is eschatological. It's that the, God himself will come and set things right. Not in a faraway place, not that we'll leave the world and kind of zip up to another place for heaven, but that God himself will come into this broken world and usher in redemption to the new heavens, to the new earth. We watch for, in the words of the creed, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That is our ultimate hope. Um, But we also believe that God's kingdom is not just something kind of waiting far out in the distance, uh, in the horizon of time, but that it crashes into our reality now in our own lives and even your ordinary work week, right, your ordinary day. Um. So God, we can watch for God's work, not just at the end of all things to set things right, but His His work even today. Uh, and I think prayer is a chief way that teaches us this craft of watching. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, talks about prayer like bird watching, that it teaches us to kind of sit and wait for something extraordinary to burst into view. This is his words, and um. It teaches us to live with a kind of expectancy, with an awareness, with our eyes sufficiently open, he says. That this posture of living with your eyes open is basic to Christian discipleship. It's required by Chris, Christian discipleship. We watch for the coming of God's kingdom, but we also watch for that in, in our own life, in, in our own ordinary day. In 2017, really practically, one of the ways that that looked for me was, um, I, I began to have this kind of insatiable need for beauty. Um, that I wanted to be reminded of God's work in the world through, through like physical, but also, um, kind of moral beauty. Um, as a church, we gather every week to watch for the eschaton for Jesus making all things new. But we also watch for that in our daily life and community together in our own church community. So this leads to the final practice, which is work. So we don't just kind of passively watch for the kingdom to come. We can also through our own labor, participate, join in God's work of bringing light into the darkness there's a tendency in our culture to kind of, um, assign uh goodness to human agency and then implicitly kind of blame God for all the wrong things in this world. So an example I bring up in the book is, um, uh, uh, a standup comic who I like a lot actually, but who talks about, um, how, uh, when you think doctors for helping you, uh, Get over cancer, for instance, that it's like kids thinking Santa Claus, right? That, um, I'm sorry, when you think, when you think God for, um, healing your cancer, to doctors, that feels like, um, when kids think Santa Claus for their presence instead of their parents, that it somehow takes gratitude away from the doctors to think God. In this situation, God is the author of cancer, God is to who to be blamed, but the cure involves, it, it's entirely about us, right? It's entirely the doctor. It's entirely medical science. I call this idea in the book competitive agency. Um, that, uh, there's a, once you start seeing this, you'll see it everywhere. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, at the beginning of the uh, COVID pandemic, when um, New York numbers started dropping, he said, our behavior has stopped the spread of the virus. God did not stop the spread of the virus. So you see that um that it's either God or us, right it can't be both, and you begin to even see this among christians right that um that we're wanting God to kind of step in and zap the world with healing or zap the world with goodness um and we take kind of a passive posture, but as Christians, we know and proclaim that God is already at work um before we ever begin to work that is his prompting and his power by which we engage in all good works um that ephesians talk about we are god's workmanship created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance for us to do so all work flows from from the trinity from the the love of the trinity and i won't get too much into this because Steve Garber is coming next week and he's he's the expert on this. So um, you should talk to Steve Garber about work and God's work and redemption and how it joins with our own work. Um, but I wanted to say that this idea of competitive agency, which is so prevalent in our co- culture, you'll start seeing it everywhere, is um, anathema. It's it's uh, just unheard of in the Christian tradition that. um it was never either God at work or our work in competition with each other. So we, we participate in God's work through our own work. So we work to alleviate justice, injustice, to build up the common good. Um, and in that, we are joining God in the work he's already doing. We're participating as co-laborers together with him. So we do this in big ways, obviously through our vocations, but we also do this through small acts of kindness, through being the church for each other, for dropping off a casserole at a grieving friend's house, for helping with a sick uh, roommate, for, um, for uh, taking care of one another in our communities, but also through, through, um, larger swaths of life, through, through medicine and law and good governance and good politics and seeking a just society. And through this way, we, um, we begin to uh, push back on the darkness in the world. But I'll say just lastly, very briefly, um, that, um, uh, it's key that we hold these dispositions and postures and practices together. Um, that if we only weep and stop there, we can fall into despair. Um, uh, or kind of, um, or cynicism about the world. Um, so we we must also kind of watch for God, for God's work, for the coming kingdom. But if we take a posture of watching, that could end up um, being really passive, like the world's going to hell in a handbasket and we're just kind of going to um, sit back and wait for Jesus to come and set things right. Uh, or it could be kind of a sentimental passivity of um, where we are just kind of, hoping that God is going to um, make things okay and we therefore kind of belittle the brokenness of the world. So we also have to work and join in God's work of alleviating suffering. But if we, um, if we go too quickly to work, which, um, Without the the real, the the real work of grief and watching, we can become frenzied and compulsive, uh, even idolatrous in our work. We can come to see our own selves as the savior, as the redeemer of the world. Um, and when we work all of our work, we inevitably um, see how it participates itself in brokenness, in darkness, in systems of injustice, but also just in our own limitations. And so it sends us back into lament, into weeping, and it sends us back into watching how we, could, we can redeem even our own labor and even our own work, and that sends us back into work. Ultimately, where we see weeping, watching, and working coming together is on the cross, right? Jesus wept as he watched for the coming of of the kingdom through his own labor, through his own work. And it is because of this, it's because of God's own weeping and God's own watching, God's own work. It's because God himself entered into vulnerability, entered into darkness, that we can meet God in our own vulnerability. The great mystery is not just that there's a mystery of theodicy, but that we in our own suffering, um, participate in or complete Jesus's suffering. This doesn't mean that Jesus's suffering was insufficient, but it does mean that through our own, um, that, that his story continues through the church. And so through our own lives, through our own suffering, we, we find that he beat us there. We meet Jesus in suffering, that we meet God himself because God entered into vulnerability first. All right. So that is a summary of my book. And, um, I am now we, I think we're taking questions.
0: Sure. Um, Tish, so we have a question about, um, the fact that in your, in your author's note at the beginning of the book, you mentioned that you finished this book up, um, around the time that COVID was just starting and we didn't yeah. really know what was coming next. And so uh, the question is, how would this book be different if you wrote it today rather than finished it up a year ago?
2: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Um, That's a hard question because I'm not exactly sure how it would be different. But um, I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I would have brought up COVID um, if I finished it today. It seems crazy not to. At the same time, uh, I write books for like 10 years, 20 years. And I hope, I hope that even just a few years from now, COVID will be in the rear view mirror, right, that we won't, we won't feel it quite so closely. The publisher and I actually went back and forth um, about whether, particularly because this book came out, you know, I, I it was like, I, um, I was finishing the book really like the week that, um, that things started shutting down whether or not we should pause it and put more in about um, coronavirus. And we ultimately made the decision not to. Um, but I think um, what's been interesting to me about COVID in is that, um, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say about COVID. Um, I just actually wrote a piece for Christine today about this idea of competitive agency and how that has played out with, the mask debate and with um, the way we've responded to COVID. But one thing I would say is that I feel like as a culture, as a whole society, uh, we had a hard time embracing weeping, embracing mourning. And um, this is different. You know, this is different than what I saw. And I I feel like for those of us who are alive during 9-11, there was like a little moment, you know, where kind of we were all weeping together. And then it very quickly kind of splintered, right, and became uh, different political groups and uh, uh, arguing about all kinds of the response and and um, the war in Iraq and um, but there was there was times for mourning and in COVID we haven't really seen collective. Mourning. There hasn't been like a nationwide day of mourning. The closest we got was, um, the day before Biden's inauguration, they had a memorial service for those lost. Um, but we didn't have anything like a day of mourning or, um, uh, uh, my friend Michael Ware, who's, uh, political, who, um, is an expert in politics, uh, noted, uh, the difference, the different response that we had to COVID versus something like the Challenger exploding, uh, which um, Reagan, you know, gave a speech at the time. I think it was Reagan um, acknowledging that loss. There was a day of mourning. So I, what I have found is we didn't really mourn this, and and because of that, our mourning really quickly turned to anger and polarization. Um, and so I, I talk in the book how if if you don't deal with grief it doesn't go away. It comes out in different ways. And one of the ways it comes out is profound rage, outrage. I think part of the problem with our, what's been widely talked about as an outrage culture in America, is that, um, that we don't know how to respond to grief. And so it, it becomes blame and outrage really quickly. Um, so it, it, this became really polarized. And there's, there's reasons. I mean, they're, they're having to do with leadership that have to do with that. But, um, but because of our lack of mourning, um, there also hasn't been much celebration. I mean, when the polio vaccine was discovered, there was a ticker tape parade in Times Square. There was, people were cheering, right? And there's been, um, It feels like America um, has gotten uh, used, has sort of been reduced to a a constant grumble. Um, We're never really mourning and we're never really celebrating. We're just grumbling. Uh, So um, I think that uh, the life that Jesus calls us to, the abundant life of Christ, is abundantly full of grief. It's abundantly full of mourning but it's abundantly full of celebration it's abundantly full of joy it's it's not just sort of the low grumbling and i i think this is a way the church could be different as we could truly embrace mourning and weeping and also celebration but i haven't seen that during covid and i haven't seen that in the church either um so that's one thing that i've noted
0: yeah, would would you someone ask uh, this question? Would you encourage millennials and Gen Z to acquaint themselves with practices of more liturgical churches than most of them have been raised with, uh, maybe for the purposes of finding cairns?
2: <laughs> well, I would. I'm an Anglican priest, so they'll you know they'll defrock me if I don't say yes to that answer or <laughs> to that question. But I mean, I that's why I've like I didn't I didn't grow up with liturgical. Um, practices. I I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and then was Presbyterian for a while. Um and so it was pretty kind of low church. Um and I was drawn I think that as um we find kind of as Christianity becomes weirder, right, in our culture, less common, more marginalized, there's a rise in folks who don't identify as Christians or really any religion, that, um, those practices that have endured generation and generation, there's a rootedness to them that, um, that rooted me in my own faith, um, that receiving practices and prayers from the church, um, kept me grounded in a way that, um, my own, you know, maybe, um, moment to moment, like sense of faith didn't. I think in evangelicalism in particular, there can be such a huge, um, focus on, on the emotions. You have to feel faith or on the, on your, on, um, kind of, uh, cognitive, um, ascent to a set of beliefs. And of course I'm for, Belief, right? I'm <laughs> for the creeds, um, and I'm for emotions, but I also think that all of that kind of waxes and wanes, and um, and that's normal. That's that's not bad, or it doesn't mean that you're you're not sufficiently um, walking with Jesus. But I think um, we need. Uh, I'll just speak for me. The beauty of liturgy uh, has shaped me has grounded me in a way that I needed, um, particularly I think as the culture um, becomes uh, more um, at odds with Christian faith, but also um, uh, beyond just kind of rooting me, I think it it forms us. And um, a great book for folks to read if you haven't is um, James K. Smith's You Are What You Love. The idea that we're, that your, your church has a liturgy, like whatever it is, whatever church you go to. I grew up with a church that would have found itself non liturgical in many ways. Um, but if I stayed home on a given Sunday, I could tell you what was happening, you know, within about five minutes of accuracy. So you are being formed by something you are being shaped. I mean, everything from the Steelers to like professional football to our nation. These are all, to Twitter, has its own kind of liturgy, has formation. And so um, so thinking really well about how we're being formed, about how our imaginations are being formed in the faith, uh, I think is, is really important for discipleship now.
0: Um, somebody else is asking, when enduring the mystery of theodicy, where do you believe Christian contentment comes into play? in the midst of lament and grief. And she says, I think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, who was said to be content in every situation. Do you think contentment through the Holy Spirit should be a Christian's instinctual response in difficulties or a sense of lamentation?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't think those are opposed to one another. Um, so uh, I think I I talk about this in the book. Walker Percy talks about how Christianity in the South, in particular in America, he was writing about the South, but I think you could apply this to the church across the board, has become a syncretistic a, a, a kind of admixture of Christianity and Stoicism. So um, the Stoics, you know, were kind of um, about sort of denying your own desire, denying your own sense of suffering, kind of um, gritting it out, right, that, the ultimate picture of, of goodness was kind of, um, to be completely detached from the world to the extent that you, um, suffer with a blank face, right? That you suffer, that you suffer stoically, that you suffer without, um, without, um, complaint. And I think that we have sometimes confused what Paul is talking about there in commitment and, uh, with contentment. As stoicism. And, um, I don't think Paul is asking us to sort of grin and bear it and not be honest about the pain and sorrow of, of losing a child or having a friendship breakup or, um, or doing bad on a test, right? Or in Paul's case, shipwrecks and, um, beatings. I don't think that it's to sort of I think we have to be careful as Americans because we've all been so deeply formed by stoicism to not to not read that back on Paul. Um, The contentment that he's talking about there uh, comes from a deep trust in in the goodness of God in the midst of that and the presence of God in the midst of that. Um, So I have a chapter in the book on joy. um, And, uh, man, it was the hardest Chapter to write, and my favorite. In some ways, it's it's my favorite chapter. Actually, the last chapter on the love of God is my favorite. But this is it was close. Um, but I talk about joy as um, the ability to kind of practice gratitude, um, to to notice, like I said, even in the darkness, glimpses of light. I talk about prayer. As kind of like our pupil, our spiritual pupils dilating in the book that they, um, our pupils dilate to let in more light, even in dark places. And I think prayer acts to teach us to kind of notice the light and the darkness. Um, and so I think Christian contentment is the ability to de- to truly, honestly name the sorrow, the suffering, the lamentation, the brokenness and to, in the midst of that, to watch for God at work and to experience gratitude, to experience um, Thanksgiving of God at work in the midst of, of brokenness of the, of the world.
0: We have just a couple minutes left. Um, I wonder what advice you'd give to aspiring writers.
2: Yeah, um, so <laughs> advice to inspiring writers. I love this question. Um, One of the things I would say is to a, – a well, it's hard to give this uh, just an easy answer because there's so many different kinds of writing, right? Like novelists are going to be different than the kind of spiritual and theological writing I do versus something like poets. Um, but I would say whatever you do, um, read a lot, read broadly, read things that you like, Read things you don't like that you feel like are nourishing. I mean, that like you should, like theology books that, um, but also read things you like. Like you, you kind of, I have to be careful when I'm writing a book because you do, it, you do subtly sort of pick up what you're reading. So I have to be careful not to read, um, poorly written books when I'm writing because I don't want to, I don't want to subtly pick it up. But, um, read really broadly. Um, second, I would say, um, man, receive instruction, receive from others. What I mean is there's almost nothing. I I think that it should be required for all spiritual writers that, um, they at some point take a theology class where they might have deeply held beliefs that they write about. And the teacher says, no matter how deeply held this is. This is not good enough. <laughs> you didn't make your point or you didn't you didn't argue it or you didn't back it up. Um, in other words, for me, seminary, that process of, of saying here's what I think and them saying make it better is just such an important practice for writers. I think this is the, the problem I have with blogs is that it makes you think that everything you write is great and it's not. Um, so we need kind of correction in that. The, another way is get editors. Man, get your friends to edit. Um, if you can have good, good editors, I feel like we teach us how to write. Um, and writing is rewriting. Just continuously rewrite. So, um, the last thing I would say is write a lot. You really do learn by, to write by writing. And, um, so keep writing. And if someone Ask you to write, whether it's for your church newsletter or something, you know, something bigger, just keep, keep writing. Um, say yes to, to, at first I just said yes to all the opportunities I had to write, and then they just led to more and more and more. Where now, unfortunately, I can't say yes. It's too many to say yes to, but, um, but uh, say yes. Have a, and, and ultimately, I would say the hardest part of writing is thinking right? You have to have something to say. And so think deeply, learn to think deeply, take time in silence, take, read good books, have discussions with friends about things you're not certain about. Um, uh, Writing is impossible without learning how to think well. Um, And writing well will ultimately help you learn to think better. So there's a symbiotic relationship between those two.
0: Well, I want to thank everybody for being with us tonight. We had a good group with us tonight. I want to thank Tish, uh, and I've, I've asked Jamie to to wrap things up for us. Let me see if I can get her back here. There we go. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I do want to tell everybody that if you have friends or if you want to go back who who weren't able to to be with us tonight, and or you want to go back and uh, review what's been said, we've recorded this. It'll be on the GVALS website. So if you go to the Geneva College webpage and you just type in G V A L S. It'll bring up our website. It should be up by early next week. So uh thanks for joining us, Tish. Thank you for joining us as well. And uh for for leading us through this. It's been a pleasure to to hear you and a pleasure to plug your book again to read your book. It was it was really it is really powerful. Um Jamie.
1: Yeah, I um uh Tish, thanks so much. Um this was timely in in so many ways. Um I think collectively. And, uh, individually, I know for myself, um, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I feel like I'm plugging this book, but I do. I love it. Um, there's a note in here, uh, where Tish actually speaks to another book I love. And I just want to share this real quick. Uh, and in this book, she writes in the divine conspiracy, another book you should all should have on your shelf. Uh, Dallas Willard reminds us that where transformation is actually carried out is in our real life where we dwell with God and our neighbors. First, we must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. And I love this line. God is yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. Um, and so I think what I appreciated about what you said tonight, Tish, was it's a reminder to be present, um, to be in the moment, um, the hard moments, the dark moments, the night moments, the day moments. Um, and, and, and that calling to being present. Um, but I think too, I think tonight as we have these types of conversations and one of the things I love about G um, is that this is the goodness of the community of, of, of Christ, right? Like we get to come together, we get to share, we get to discuss, we get to wrestle together as brothers and sisters, uh, in the faith where we are. Um, and there's a richness and a beauty, um, that, uh, I don't want us to miss tonight. Because this is the privilege of kingdom living right here, and so Tish, thanks for leading us well in that tonight, um, and Dr. Cole, as always, for for um, making sure these events happen, and to Marlene and others who uh, contribute to the logistics, we're really grateful. So, uh, if I may, it's like a pray real quick on our way out, um, and then we can uh, we can close. Father, we bless you tonight. Your faithful just, kind, and good. Lord, I just pray that the conversation um, that we entered into together as we all came to this table tonight, Father, that you would seal it in our hearts, that you would cultivate um, the seeds that you've planted, that they would produce a rich harvest of wisdom, of contentment, of joy, of hope, of faith. Um Lord, in that, in that you would just show us yourself in deeper ways, new ways, and fresh ways. Father, that we might reflect back to this world your hope and your goodness and your love and your mercy and your grace. And so, Lord, we thank you just for the opportunity to be together, um, to share your word. Uh, Father, we give thanks. And we ask these things in the mighty, capable, and able name of Jesus Christ.
2: Amen.
0: Thanks again, Tish. Thank you, Dean Swank. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you
2: for having me.